Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Math and Physics Podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray. And we welcome you back to episode number 89, where today we're going to be talking about some of the experiments that we have done in our short careers at <laughs> university. Yeah. Not and short, relative. relative. Yeah, I mean, we've been doing experiments since first year, mm -hmm. which... I don't first remember year any experiments of them, to were be not yeah the like first year physics usually has like a practical part now I'm assuming most universities have this like I yeah. know U of T does obviously because we did it but I'm assuming most other universities where like if you're going into a physics line you're probably in your physics class you're probably going to have like a practical or like some yeah. sort of experimental part of it I don't I, know if you learned too much I just there. remember one thing we had we had a, a pig with wings tied to a string i remember that <laughs> yeah. and it was just going around it was going circles. around yeah I remember you had that. to calculate like the tension in the string and the centripetal, centripetal force or acceleration, acceleration yeah, yeah of the of the pig that was fun so was <laughs> i mean it was i mean a big part and we've spoken about experiments so much on on different episodes like a big part of like experimental physics is just about taking a scenario that we understand theoretically. Sometimes we don't even, sometimes you don't even have a theoretical idea of something and you just want to experiment. That's a little different, but usually, at least in the scope of our experiments, you have a very good or a very solid understanding of the theory and you just want to see how it's applied in real life. I mean, like that's not very true life. though, because from my labs, I don't, I didn't really know anything. No, but the theory exists that. is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, what I'm yeah. trying to say is that the theory is there. Okay. You're simply trying to prove the theory. You're trying to show that the theory exists. But in a lot of experiments, they don't even know if the theory is... They're experimenting mm. before they even have a theoretical model yeah. to see if it works or whatever, right? So there, there, are, there are different types of experiments. But I think mainly, at least what we're going to be focusing on, is the ones we've done, mainly where the theory is known and we're trying to just deduce something about reality. Like whatever experiment that we're basically proving. Yeah. Right. And there's, you know, a lot of basic experiments that are super straightforward. Like, for example, if you want to calculate um, the gravitational constant, just G, you know, 9.8, you can just throw objects down and measure how long it takes for the object to hit mm -hmm. the ground and do a little bit of analysis on that data. But there are also cooler experiments that you can do and one of them i did and i'll be talking about that later are you talking about the hoops no D did you do the hoop one? no i didn't because our very first experiment in our, my second year physics lab was where we basically had hoops like rings of different sizes and we would like kind of perturb them a little bit and then we would see their oscillation and then via pendulum equations, we would deduce mm. G. So this is actually a very classic thing. Maybe not the hoop situation, like with different varying lengths, but a very classic situation of like measuring G with a pendulum. I think a lot of people have done this in like mm. high school physics because yeah. it's something that kind of introduces you to the notion of experimental physics, but it's very simple because you're basically using your equations root L over G to solve for your, because you already know your period in this case, your idea, because you're experimenting with it. You know your period, you know your length, then you can kind of deduce G experimentally. So that's one way to do it. And that's kind of a very famous way to uh, kind of uh, predict the value of G, different different heights and everything. This can be shown, you know, is different at differing heights and stuff like that. So it's a really cool intro. But yeah, a lot of people probably did this in high school. 
but we can obviously we do get a little more complicated because now we also get into actually inputting a lot of this data into programming software right because it's not only you that's just writing like sometimes if you're just taking a couple measurements if you're doing a couple experiments you can just take them down and you can just do the average on your piece of paper mm -hmm. but when you're taking like multiple hoops multiple different experiments yeah. it's a lot easier sometimes to just yeah. put it in a program and just have it do everything for you so there are a lot of advantages to you know computerized stuff which we're also going to get into today because that's heavily heavily oriented in physics and yeah for the hoop thing could you assume the hoop is just like a like a regular pendulum yeah so that was a little weird because i don't think we could because mass in a pendulum is a point mass is the idea oh yeah but in a hoop that's not the case anymore moment of inertia yeah, or something exactly like that. there was yeah. a moment of inertia situation that we also had a factor into it oh yeah because yeah. there's mass that's distributed evenly oh yeah and the parallel axis theorem to because bring it up what's we did have to use yeah. that because what's actually happening in a, in a pendulum is if you think about a mass like the way that it's theoretically shown like the analogy is that it's a point mass yeah right so we have a point mass just moving up and down the problem with multiple not a non-point mass is that every every uh like i don't want to say differential but like every small yeah. unit of mass is moving not only that point so it's kind of like a generalization so it was a little harder like using a hoop versus obviously it wasn't like a high school physics class but uh i'm just saying like the idea is still there like getting mm -hmm. g like stuff like that is still there and it's cool how you can do that yeah, yeah. all right so before we start I mean, we have kind of, some yeah. news all right everybody yesterday we hit nineteen thousand followers yes, on spotify sir. spotify yeah that's just yeah. Uh, we've we've passed 20 overall like in total yeah yeah we have passed 20 overall uh but we did hit 19 so thank you to everybody who continues yeah. to follow continues to listen on spotify and if you are listening on spotify do make sure to go on youtube and check the video out because, I mean, I think if you have been listening, you definitely know that we do videos now. So if you want to come see our faces, go for it. I, I've seen a lot of comments, and this is interesting from you guys, that you don't think, like, when you hear us versus when you see us, you think we're switched. Yeah. I hear so many, like, and I'm like, huh, that's interesting. Yeah. Actually, one person said that they knew exactly which one was. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, spot I on. saw that. <laughs> Props to that guy. So, yeah. Um... What else other than oh yeah 325,000 downloads 325,000 downloads we're oh. really close to the big 500 really very close cool. to the big 500 very so exciting continue downloading our episodes basically i mean that would be dope on youtube we did recently i know we've mentioned this before but uh we're near no no we're not we're 2065 i was gonna say near 2100 but that's not really true <laughs> There's still quite a few, but we're 2065. So we're, we're getting up the ladder slowly, but surely. So again, if you are on YouTube, why not smash that subscribe button? Smash that like button boom, boom. for the algorithm. And also leave a comment because every single week we pick a comment as the comment of the week we and we read it out loud We do <laughs> here on the podcast. This week's comment comes from Yigit3301. Okay, probably not his name, but okay. Uh, yeah. They say, love the podcast. It helps with my crippling depression. <laughs> well, I love it. We are very happy to help. I love it. I so love it. I'm glad you enjoy the well, podcast. Well, hopefully you're not, you're not crippling depressed, but um, I think that <laughs> hopefully that was in fact a joke, but uh, hopefully you are okay and take care of yourself. Make sure to leave a comment <laughs> if you want to be next week's comment of the week and we might just pick yours. Very simple. Very simple. Anything else?
I don't think so. All right. So do you want to go first? I mean, talking about, okay. I mean, we can start with a, with a simple, simple stuff. Basic understanding or basic idea of starting an experiment is first getting a little bit into computer science. And before, because I know experiments will take a big part of this episode. I just want to get this a little bit out of the way, like getting used to coding and getting used to like Python in this in this case, or like any real language. Python is mainly used because it's because it has a lot of libraries that are very accessible. Uh, Matplot, you know, uh, your your NumPy, your very big ones that is very accessible to the average individual that they can use to kind of better their code. But the big part of what I'm basically trying to say is that learn code if you're trying to do experimental physics, because what you always start with. And this was a thing that I was luckily okay with because I'd already taken like three years of computer science in my high school. But I know a lot of students who, even in first year, in first year we were introduced to a little bit of Python, but a lot of students were still struggling there. And then second, it did become a lot harder because it was more rigorous. You had to apply a lot of the things that you understood about it. So it did get a little bit harder. But if you have a fundamental understanding of what's happening in a particular program, I think it makes sense, right? So the fundamental idea is, well, after you input your data, you always want to observe it, right? You always want to just look at different plots. You want to just look at what it's doing, even before you do any analysis, just to see what the heck is actually happening, right? Um, uh, one of the experiments that we started with in my particular class, in my second year of physics, I think that's mainly what we're going to be going over. Our second year of physics uh, experimental class was this oscillating mass on a spring, right? And we had two cases, one where the mass was, well, oscillating on a spring and the other where there was a dampener that was introduced into the system. So it would basically kind of weight the spring almost and dampen the whole system as time goes on well actually it was a metal plate that would yeah it was okay. air resistance air resistance mm -hmm. sorry again i have done this course about a year ago so i, I don't remember the exact stuff i will not i, I will mention that right now i uh, don't remember the exact stuff but i can still give the general idea and something from this is well how do you collect this data is well you have i forgot what it's called what's that thing called I don't know. I don't know. That, that, that like makes those. It just, you know what I mean. It, it calculates the distance. Yeah. From like something to whatever is in front mm -hmm. of it, like a motion sensor. Motion, or something. Se yeah, motion sensor. Motion sensor would basically be it. And what it does is it basically just relays. Does it do light? I'm pretty sure it does light. No. Right? What does no it relay? Way. Sound. Sound. I think so. Probably. It makes the noise. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it makes the noise. Yeah. So that's definitely sound, hundred percent. So it basically simply sends sound waves out. And the idea is when it hits something, it will, the idea is that it will reverse back and follow its trajectory and come back into the sensor. So the time that the sound wave took to pass is known. You know, obviously this, the speed and everything of the sound, like the properties of the sound wave, because the motion sensor is the one that makes it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you can deduce the distance pretty simply. Well, you don't have to do anything. Yeah, no, no, no you don't do it. The motion sensor, <laughs> the program does, the motion it sensor does it for you. And where the computational aspect comes in, and you can already obviously tell, you're not recording these these points individually, right? Because mm. it's a lot of data. It's a lot of distance measurements. I think it's like 100 taken. per second. 100 it's per a, second. It was yeah. a very, very, very precise yeah. data collection process and something that you would never really be able to do yourself, mm. right? So in this situation, you have this, this, this data that you now look at 
which basically simply plots the distance over the time. And you notice that, hey, it's sinusoidal. That's pretty cool mm. because, I mean, and it's pretty obvious for a, for a spring system what's actually happening, the fact that it's sinusoidal. And with the fact that it's sinusoidal, you can now deduce all kinds of properties from it. Well, also, the program calculates the velocity over time at the it same does, time. Right? Yeah, the program is yeah. pretty cool. The program so is pretty cool. You can you can plot in Python the position over time, velocity over time, and then you can also do velocity versus position, and you can get the phase plot mm -hmm. of it, and you see that when there's no damping happening, it just follows this elliptical orbit in the in phase space, which is expected. And uh, when you do put the the damper, the damper mm. on it, I guess something like that. Um, what happens is that the air resistance actually um, produces a force against the motion of the spring, and so over time the amplitude actually decreases, and you can actually do it like mathematically and see that the amplitude decays exponentially. Mm -hmm. And so what you do is you record the data. And to model the amplitude, like how the amplitude decays over time, basically you, you select the data points that represent like the max height that the spring achieves. And then you actually have to curve fit those points. We can talk about that in a second. Yeah. So, <laughs> you, you, yeah, I guess we can talk about the okay, well, well we just, just very briefly, I guess, because it is no, kind of complicated. It's, but it's, a, it's an interesting, complicated yeah. thing to talk about. So, the curve fitting function is from SciPy. SciPy dot optimize. It's a. It's basically a, another library in Python. Yeah, I was unfamiliar with Python. And so, what the curve fitting function does is, well, you input this model function, which is basically what you expect it to follow. Like, if you know you're trying to model a uh, exponential function then your model function will be like e to the x you know what i mean or e to the ax, AX yeah or technically a e to the bx yeah plus c you, they can be multiple. you just add yeah. you you add all the parameters that you general, want general exactly yeah. yeah in your model function you want it to be basically as general as possible because in this case um there are actually functions in other programs i know there's one in r i'm not the probably use one in python that automatically models the best fit. Oh, yeah! It automatically models damn. the best function that would work. Damn. So there are some really broken uh, pieces of code, but again, that's not the real point. The point isn't to just have it do everything yeah. for you, because you also want to really understand what's happening. So yeah, so basically, the model function you want it to be as general as possible, so it can input all the various parameters. And the main purpose of this curve fit function is when you give it these parameters like a, b, and a, b, and c, for example, as you just said with the exponential decay function, you have a times e to the bx plus c. Um, I mean, they're all your variables in your general exponential. And what the curve fit function spits out, and this is where it gets really cool, all you're really inputting is what your x values are and what your, and, and, and what your observed values are. So you input your, your time which is basically just a linear, like a linear subspace of one zero to whatever, however long you recorded it for. And then you input your observations. I don't think subspace is the word. The subspace, but... I was going to say linspace for yeah. mp.linspace. And yeah. then I just said subspace. I know that that's not, not the right name, but it's like a, it's like a, it's just individual, individual blocks starting basically integers from zero to whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, that's your idea. And your next step is or after you input your times you input your observations and what this function spits out 
is the best values. Now I'm, I'm going to define best in a second, but the best values for A, B, and C. So or whatever you yeah. can have as many parameters as you want. You can like put an A, you can do A E to the B plus C X times D, yeah. and it'll still just figure out the B plus C. Like yeah. I mean, even if it doesn't, sense. even if it doesn't match your data at all, it'll still give you the best ones. That like you, you can, that you should use. I mean, I think we spoke about spoke about this in the statistics episode, like last episode. But like you can still fit a straight line to curve data. Yeah doesn't make any sense, but you can still do it, Yeah. right? And the way that it does it, and we, I, I did speak about this a lot, is linear least square fitting. It basically takes the least squares of your of your residual. Wait, does it? Do, wait, no, curve fit works with chi-square, doesn't it? Does yeah, curve fit work with chi-square or it does, does it work with linear? I think it's chi-square. Uh, actually, I think it's linear. I'm not sure. Cause... I'm pretty sure it's just the least square fit, but yeah. I could be mistaken because, again, what's basically happening is you're just seeing, okay... Out of these, what it does is it models multiple functions and it sees which one of them will give me the residuals, which are your observations in this case, closest, the average, like kind of even on, even on this side, even on this side. And for those listeners, I'm basically saying even below the line and even number of observations above the line. So you don't want something where all your main observations are above your line of best fit or below your line of best fit. And I'm, I'm saying line, but I'm saying any function works. Curve, sinusoidal, really anything would work. And the idea is that it simply calculates what are this, these optimized parameters for whatever values you give it, and it just spits out your model function. Yep. It just spits out basically a prediction, right? So based on what you have, it spits out where should this be a little later on. Because the problem with a lot of data is that you only have a limited subset, right? And this is also, I'm always making connections to statistics, but like uh, you can, like you, what you're modeling, you're modeling a sample. Your goal is to predict things about the population, right? So you're modeling five seconds of this one spring. Your goal is to be able to model for however long, any mass, any spring. That's your idea. So how do you do that? Well, you obviously can only observe whatever you have with you, but with those observations, you put it into functions like the curve fit function, and it basically can help you predict future values for different, different values of mass, different values of this. I mean, actually, you wouldn't be able to change the spring or the mass because the function that you're fitting in this just... particular situation, because the spring and the because the yeah. mass and the spring constant don't actually affect the equation of oh, wait, wait, wait. doesn't. Yeah, m over k yeah m over k, over k does m. k over m exactly so it would affect the yeah but i'm saying that when you curve fit your data mm. you wouldn't be able to predict anything about any other spring because the curve fit is for that particular spring and mass the idea is with your independent variable is what i meant so like yeah. in this case time so i guess yeah, it doesn't really help that much. but the idea is okay if you have your uh if you have your exponential decaying thing for five seconds and you model it, yeah. you'll be able to know what happens. I know, all I'm saying seconds. is that Sorry, you can't that's what I meant. the spring. Well, the idea is if in a, okay, yeah, you're right. In a highly predictor uh, environment, like where you can, where you use the spring constant as yeah, in the that predictor. Case. Yes, in that case, you would be able to do it. Point that I'm trying to make is that the main point of functions such as curve fit and things that do similar, similar uh, functions that do similar things is basically just the model predictions. Right? Mm. It's to model your observation and basically to understand, okay, maybe this will, ha this will happen theoretically with what I got. 
And now what I got to do is when I have this model of my observations, I can now compare that to theoretical knowledge that I already have. I'm like, okay, like for example, very simple thing I'll give you here, voltage resistance, you know, it's supposed to be linear. So you model it. Is it linear? Does it follow a linear curve and then compare it to what it should be? And then mm. look at how those lines work. Are they similar? Are they on top of we each other? We actually did do that. No, yeah, we actually did do <laughs> yeah. a very similar thing. We did the exact no, same thing. Exact 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 <laughs> but the, again, the idea is all there. The idea is just to get observations and to parse it into these functions that can calculate parameters, that can calculate predictions, and then you can anal uh, analyze the data from there. Yeah, so let's actually get into uh, a lab, something that is fun so for our class basically the first three labs that we did you know quote unquote lab first two weeks you just learn the coding that you'll need which hopefully you already know because it would be kind of i can't really imagine having like learned for the first time about like lists <laughs> it, it, that would have been a little bit too much on my plate but i did know a lot of the things before going into the class and so the first two weeks was just like okay you learn everything you need to know about the coding. And then we had three Pi labs, which were like the spring mass we did. Py okay. Python, like Pi lab. No one knows what that means. Pi labs. Pi okay. Python. It's Python just, it's labs. The word. Okay, but basically, it's just a computational lab. Yeah. So it's just, it's mainly heavily centered around doing yeah. things. There's just Python. like a very simple data and uh, gathering process. And then everything else is done on Python. And, you know, we had to lab write the lab reports for those. Um, one of them was uh, Ohm's law, which we do like circuits and stuff. And the other one was uh, nuclear decay, where we had like this decaying thing. And we recorded the decay count over time. And it decreased exponentially. Mm -hmm. And we had to do a bunch of Poisson distributions. Uh, so that was cool. But it's not the coolest part of the class. The best part is that... Um, I think it's like halfway through or maybe a little bit over halfway through the course. Um, there's like a list of labs that they put out and you have to choose three of them. And I think I think there's like 15, 15 labs or something. Anyways, they all have like they're a lot. They're all, they're all really cool. You get to use like some crazy instruments and yeah. So you choose three of them, but yeah, you really have no idea what you're getting into unless you read every single lab handout, which is a lot of reading. So I didn't do that. You I read just read all the lab handouts. You read all the lab handouts for the experiments. Yeah. No, yeah. like all of, even the ones you didn't do. Oh no, of course. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I thought you were saying. I'm like, what? I'm saying okay, before no, you sense. do. Yeah, 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 of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, so. I didn't read every single experiment lab handout. So I didn't like when I chose my experiments, I was just going off of the name, you know? So I, mm. I, the first one I did was called air gyroscope. And that one so far has been my favorite experiment out of the three that I've done. Right now I'm writing my last report. Um, so air gyroscope was the first one. What happens in air gyroscope? All right. So the goal of the lab is to calculate G, which is 9.81. is to calculate that value experimentally. And... So what you're given, this is actually such a cool lab. So you're given a metal sphere and one of the sides is flattened like a little bit. And so there's like, I'd say uh, if I remember correctly, the sphere was like five centimeters across and the flattened part was like, was like half a centimeter into the, 
sphere. So mm -hmm. it's, it's like a pretty small flat part. And you're also given this like this like plate with a little pocket in it to put the sphere. And then at the bottom and on the side of the pocket, there's two air holes where you can turn on like the valves and then air comes out. And so what actually happens? One more detail, the ball is actually magnetized. Um, so if you have the axis, I'll call it the polar axis. And this is the axis that goes across and through the flat spot. And so the ball is magnetized perpendicularly to the polar axis. So it points like on the side. And so what you do is you put the ball inside of the little pocket and you turn on the air. So the air on the bottom of the ball is going to make it like float because it's like high pressure air. And if I remember, the ball was like one pound or something like that. Um, then that the air hole on the side would make it spin. And what we had to do was we had to accelerate the ball such that it spun around its polar axis, which is actually kind of a tricky task to do for it to not like spin in every direction. But we had to speed it up to 60 hertz. So we had to make it spin 60 times per second. Now, first question is, how do you know it's going at 60 hertz? And this was actually really cool. Um, what we did is we drew a dot on the ball and we were also given a strobe light where you can control how fast light was flashing. And so if you shine the strobe light at the ball and you see the dot on the ball, if the ball is rotating at 60 rounds per second and your light is flashing at 60 hertz, that means that when you see the dot, by the time the light flashes again, if the ball is going at 60 hertz as well, the ball will have enough time to rotate exactly once and you will see the dot at the exact same place when the light flashes again. And so if you shine the strobe light at the, at the ball and the dot isn't moving ever, that means it's going at exactly 60 hertz. And it's cool because you shine the light as you're accelerating the ball. And so as the ball is accelerating, it gets to 20 hertz. But 20 hertz is one third the speed of 60 hertz. I guess it's not a speed, but whatever. Um, value. So yeah, it's one third the value of 60 hertz. And so what happens is that the light shines, you see the dot at a particular spot. Then when the, when the line shines again, the ball only has the time to spin one third of a full rotation. So then you see the dot at like one third of the way. And then the next time it's at two thirds of the way. And then the next time it's at three thirds. So then what you, what you see is like this triangle pattern show up on the ball. And then it speeds up even more. And then you see, once it gets to 30 hertz, it goes exactly half a rotation for every flash. And then you see two dots. And then it accelerates even more. And then it gets to one dot. And then it looks like it's not moving at all. Then you know that it's exactly at 60 hertz. What do you do now, though? This is the cool part. Remember I said that the ball is magnetized. And so around the actual plate that you have your ball spinning on, there's actually like a wire that's connected to just, you know, an outlet. And the AC current of just, you know, I forget what it's called, like the 
city power grid or something like the current that comes out of the wall mm -hmm. is 60 hertz so the cur the current alternates 60 times per second. per second now if you know anything about electrodynamics and magnetostatics if you use some of the cool laws that they have over there you'll see that um if you have a ring with alternating current or just let's forget the alternating part if you have a ring of current um you use the right hand rule you put your thumb in the direction of the current and then your fingers will curl in the direction of the magnetic field and so the magnetic field when the current is going around clockwise is going to be pointing downwards and then when the current reverses the um magnetic field will be going upwards exactly where the ball is and now remember how i said the ball was magnetized and the moment of the of the ball is going around at 60 hertz and so what happens is that you need to lock the rotation of the ball to the current so you turn on the current once it goes at 60 hertz and then the reason why it doesn't slow down is because when the moment of the ball is going from down to up the magnetic field is pushing the moment upwards. And then when the moment is going from up to down, the current reverses because they're both going at the same frequency. The current reverses and pushes the moment downwards. And so you get this just this like gyroscopic kind of well, the, the gyroscopic thing hasn't shown up yet. But it's just that the ball is not going to slow down because it's constantly being just like hmm. pushed along in its rotation now how do we calculate g from this this is the interesting part so if you were to place this ball with its polar axis parallel to a table as you know the center of mass is a little bit off center and so the ball would rotate to have the flat spot facing upwards and so this actually creates a torque because the ball has an angular momentum pointing in the direction of its polar axis and as we know um force or sorry r cross f it's a cross product um that is torque and torque is the derivative of angular momentum so torque changes angular momentum and so the force is trying to change the ball's orientation but this would be changing the ball's orientation would be moving the vector for angular momentum upwards. Now, if you use the right-hand rule, because it's a cross product, you'll see that the torque being applied by the force of gravity is actually m causing the angular momentum vector to process around and make the ball rotate. What's this direction? Like around this way, not this way. <laughs> Oh, like, oh, yeah. there's like pitch yaw. No, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, so the, the, ball, like... the ball is rotating around its polar axis, but then the torque causes the polar axis to process around. And you can use the right-hand rule to see which direction it would process. But how do you calculate G again? Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, notice how the rate of precession is dictated by the force being applied. And so the force being applied is gravity. So at some point, you'll be able to isolate for G. And so with the moment of inertia 
with the torque and with the precession rate, you're actually able to isolate for G and solve, you know, using the things that you've measured to actually get G. And so what we would do is we'd point a laser at the ball and we have like a wall right next to us. And so we mark the wall and every time the ball would make one rotation, the laser would reflect off of the flat spot and onto the wall. And every time the dot on the wall would cross a line, we'd take a measurement. And this is insane to me because the rate of precession was around 10 minutes. And so we would take a measurement and then we'd wait 10 minutes and then we'd take another measurement. But every single measurement that we took was within half a second of every other measurement. So take in, we would take a measurement, 10 minutes would, would you go take by. The measurement manually? Yeah, we'd just yeah. time it. Yeah. So we'd take the measurement, the ball would go around. 10 minutes later, we'd see the dot come back on the wall and we'd get ready to time it. Once it hit the line, we'd time it. And it was literally within half a second. Now, 10 minutes is 600 seconds. And the rotation was, or the precession was so yeah. constant that it came down to that level of precision. Mm -hmm. So that was crazy. So then, you know, we took our data, we took our precession rates. We also measured the diameter of the ball, the, the length by which it was flattened by. We measured the mass, which you actually didn't need for the calculations, but... We measured it anyways. Um, I think that's all we had to measure. And yeah, with those values, you can calculate. You just plug them into the equation. You also have to do some more analysis, like error analysis. And um, yeah, it, it's not so straightforward. It's not just plug in the values and you get the answer. You have to do a little bit of analysis. But yeah, we ended up getting a pretty good value. I think we got like 9.79, which is pretty good. And uh yeah, it was a very cool lab. It was very cool to just look at the the ball spinning. We'd like change the frequency on the strobe light and it would be moving in like all types of crazy ways. Mm. Yeah, that was a very cool. Strobe lab. lights are cool. I know I had one for my experiments too. Yeah. And I think one takeaway from a lot of these experiments is that you're not always going to get the actual answer. Yeah. Like having an answer that is not even right though is not even bad. Because as long as you explain why that happened under the right context, it can still make sense. Because sometimes, you know, there can be an effect. Sometimes there can be a predictor. Sometimes there can be something in your experiment that's messing with it that you did not know before. So you write down your measurements this way. Because a classic thing that a lot of people do is they try to fit their data with what's theoretically, what's theoretically known. But the thing is, even though that is what you want to get, that is not what you want to do because that's always your first step into basically a bad data analyst because you never want to remove data just because it doesn't fit the model. That's terrible. That doesn't make any sense. You can't do that. Like there's a reason for why it's skewing the model. And unless there's a contextual reason for why you can remove it, you can't remove it. So in this situation, you got 9.79. I'm assuming no one really got exactly. I mean, no one will ever get like exactly. But the idea is, well, you can get more and more precise, but you're never really going to get that exact number, mm. right? Yeah. And that is, in essence, like one of the one of the characteristics of experimental physics, right? Like if you, 
if you go into it thinking that, okay, I know what I have to fit. It has to look like this. Why isn't it looking like this? You're not going to do well. You're just not going to do well. Because you have to take in whatever data that you've been given or you've acquired and you just have to analyze that in the most respectful way possible, you know, without really removing, without really touching. And that's why that's really, that's really important. You know, not getting the exact answer is not always bad. Another experiment, uh, an experiment that I did, I want to talk about the black body thing really cool, but I wanted to also talk about something small, which is a wave phenomenon. There was this uh, title of the experiment. And this was actually a, um, a pretty cool one because it wasn't actually something that we were determining. There wasn't like a goal to the, because usually when you're trying to do an experiment, you're like, okay, I want to find this. I want to solve for this. I want to calculate this. This experiment, there was nothing really like that. It was just observe the effects of waves. And I thought that was pretty cool. So basically what we did, a uh, very simple setup. We set up this ripple tank, this basic, the, the, basically this tank that like had a mirror at the bottom so that the light would reflect and show and show to the observer on a screen. So basically what would happen is on the top, there were, you could put water, right? And you could put all sorts of objects on the top, right? So for example, what we started with was like a straight barrier. And then we did like a curved barrier mm. for reflection and uh, stuff like that. And you'd send... You'd send waves water to waves. the barrier yeah. and see how water it... waves to the barrier basically. And, and what would happen is there was a light on, there was a strobe light on top, and there was a camera that was situated on the screen on the other side of the screen. And what was basically happening, super, super, super simply, it was just the light was going through the water, reflecting on the mirror that was at the bottom. It was set up at an angle such that it would reflect onto a screen. And that screen had a camera on the other side of it that then would basically record whatever you see that's happening here. So that was, I mean, a very, very simple experiment there, like very simple setup. But what we did was really cool. So like we started off with like some really simple reflection, just like putting a straight barrier there. So it was a transparent barrier. So you could actually see, you know, water if it, I mean, it obviously didn't go because it was opaque. It was solid. But I'm saying it was transparent. as It was also a black and white image. So I don't know if that really changed much but what the purpose of this was was basically to send water waves with two dippers or with, with a dipper what it would do is basically it would the small small dipper as it is called would basically oscillate back and forth and if you put it close enough to the water it basically creates ripples and this ripple you know the wave you know the frequency of the ripple so from there you can kind of deduce properties about the wave itself did you have a barrier with two slits in it and you can see oh <laughs> that's cool yeah we did we that's did really the, i was cool. going to talk about that so we started with the simple reflection stuff you know we did a curved barrier we did concave and convex and we basically modeled and we tried to model like with the picture how the water wave would basically reflect from the barrier right mm. and then for refraction, which was really cool. What do we do for refraction? How did the water go through it? I think for refraction... It's like one slit. Because remember, what's actually happening is, is the light The light is being reflected and we can see what's happening there. Because again, okay, as I did mention before, I did this like a good year and a half ago. So like, bear with me here. I am forgetting some of my some of the exact details. But the idea was that the light would kind of come onto the screen and it would showcase an angle that it went 
That doesn't make sense though. How would the water, I think it was the light. I don't think it was the water in that case because in the refraction experiment, obviously the water wouldn't be able to, like that doesn't really make any sense. It would be the light that's actually refracting through the transparent uh, barrier. So we kind of were modeling that too. But anyways, all of this to come to the coolest part, the interference part, the interference and diffraction. So we started off with a single slit, which was just for diffraction and to see how water diffracts from the slit, like the angle of diffraction. And using, using, using principles of diffraction, we basically were observing how the water moved after it passed by the slit. So before and after the slit, what the difference in the motion of the waves were. And we kind of finished it off finally with then interference with then we had two slits, like the double slit, the classic double slit experiment. And we basically did this with water waves. And obviously because interference happens in any type of wave, the fundamental, like we actually use like psi and stuff like that to calculate, even though it's nothing really to do with quantum mechanics, we still use like the properties of a wave function to estimate interference patterns. So that was actually really cool. And we actually saw like, I mean, I don't know if this is, ex I mean, this kind of is like the double slit experiment. It kind of is. I mean, it is. I mean, it totally is. Yeah. I know it totally is, but I'm just saying it's not exactly like the same setup, obviously, but the under, like the fact that I saw a double, like, I think that's really cool. I think that we actually, you know, perform the double slit experiment with water waves. I think that's something that's really mm. cool because again, the whole point of this is that the water wave fundamentally is not that different from an electromagnetic wave and is not that different from an a wave of any of any nature really that's the whole that's the whole kind of the 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 moral of the lab here that you can apply these principles of water waves to any wave because the whole generalization occurred when Again, as I was saying, we were using psi, which is usually the usually the term used for the wave function, which is a lot of in quantum mechanics, a lot to do with basically properties of systems and stuff like that. And in this case, we were kind of generalizing it, obviously, to water waves. You know, like I think I like I think usually you don't really see that. And I think kind of seeing a real life double slit experiment was definitely really cool again no real goal of this lab so like not really much to say but it was just different things that we were observing and different phenomenon that we were observing that are definitely really cool mm. i just wanted to bring them up because i know some people might be like oh that's interference i can do that at home like you can do this at home <laughs> you could probably Except not you don't actually. have like yeah, the sophisticated actually, like yeah. cameras <laughs> probably not because no it's not only the cameras it's also like the dippers you know you need to have a good like you can't just like one ripple like that's yeah. not really gonna do much it needs to be continuously rippling the water right so from that basically you can get the equation of the water wave right and once you have the equation of the water wave you are now modeling what happens to this water wave when you are sending it through different slits. We obviously were changing the size of the slits, you know, to like observe different um, different patterns and stuff like that. Like how does the slit size change what we see and stuff like that. And again, you don't even think about doing this on a, on a, on a realistic level. Like you only think about this as, oh, Young's double, double slit. You only think about this as, oh, professionals do these experiments in labs. But no, you can literally get like a tank of water and you can do this like in any, in any, in any uh, university lab. And I think that's really cool, you know, applying these really complicated concepts to a very simple model and then using that model to once again apply to very complicated concepts. And that's in essence like one of the 
one of the main ideas of experimentation. Mm. Right? Should I talk about my thermal motion or ultrasonic sound waves and water? Both are really cool. Both are really cool. Yeah. I, I personally haven't heard thermal motion because okay. I haven't done it. Okay, yeah. So I'll, I'll say thermal motion. You can do thermal. I'll do black body and then we can go into velocity. Yeah, sure. Okay. So, okay. My second lab was called thermal motion. And so there's a lot of theory in the lab handout that you had to read through before going into the experiment. And if I had to summarize it, basically, we're looking at the random motion of small beads what was your goal of the lab to calculate boltzmann's constant oh okay so okay basically we're studying brownian motion oh no way really yeah i told Shit. you this. <laughs> wait, i don't remember wait you were I told this you was this. in the lab i didn't yeah. know this i actually well maybe i just forgot so, that's cool that's really cool so we have water with very small beads inside of the water and i think if I remember correctly. Yo, you just did it. <laughs> I know. But it's, I mean, it's a weird number to remember. The The diameter oh, of the, the beads was like 0.5 micrometers or it was like, so tiny, or it was like five very, very micrometers. Tiny. Yeah, okay. very small, very small beads. And So you can't differentiate them? Not with your eyes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what we would yeah. do, and these beads actually glow in um, UV light. So we have these like really expensive microscopes with these UV light sources that shine through the, the microscope and also cameras hooked up to it, hooked up to a computer. And what we did is we put this solution with the beads on it or in it on these microscope slides and you'd put it under the microscope. You turn on the UV light source and you'd go in, you'd focus on the the focal plane of the beads and you'd find them. They're very small, very small, um, even in the microscope. Uh, but good thing is that they glow right in the UV light. So you can spot them through the binoculars. They're called where you can see with your own eyes into the microscope. So what you do is you spot some beads and then you switch the microscope to camera mode and then you would see the frame on your screen. And this was pretty cool. We had a motion, or sorry, before the motion tracking, we had like an image capturing program uh, where you can set like the amount of frames and the amount of frames per second. And then you just click go and then it would just record frames out of the camera. And then it would just record frames out of the camera. Um, I forget how many beads we did this for. I think in total we got like 22 data sets for like, you can get more than one bead in the frame. So what you would do after you capture all these images, it would save in like, we did 120 frames, two frames per second. And all of these would just save into a folder. Now there's another program. This was a motion tracking uh, program where you load your folder of, of frames. You clicked on the first frame and you'd click on the object that you want to track. And I'm pretty sure this program was designed specifically for this experiment. So mm -hmm. I, a lot of them were, yeah, a so lot of them were, it's not like it can track like elephants. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like yeah. it was made to track beads. So you click on the bead and it would actually use like the centroiding 
technique that we were doing in AST. Oh, we should talk about that. Let's talk about that after this. Yeah. Okay. So basically it would take like this center of mass approach, except replace mass with brightness to approximate the center of the bead. And then it would just go through all the frames and it would tell you the pixel position of the bead on your screen. Now, you might already be able to tell that the amount of data that we had to go through was intense. So we had the X and Y pixel coordinates of, I don't know how many beads we, like we had 22 data sets. Each data set had like two to three beads in it. We only selected the really good ones that we, you know, we went through as the motion tracker was going, we're like, oh, this looks like random motion. Um, So we'll pick that data set. We ended up, in, I, well, I ended up importing 18 different beads, like the data sets for, for 18 different beads. And each data set had the X and Y pixel coordinates for 120 frames. And so you import all of that into Python and then the analysis comes in. Um, so first of all, this was all in like the lab handout, all of the theory. You know that the for random motion, the average displacement in the X and the Y is equal to zero, but the average square displacement actually increases linearly in time. Um, Also in statistics, if you have two variables that are unrelated or uncorrelated, is that the word? Uncorrelated. Uncorrelated. Like if you have two uncorrelated variables, if you take the norm of those two, so you square them and then square root them or square them, add them, square root it, then that should follow a Riley distribution. Oh, you mean like quadrature? Yeah. Where them? Okay, yeah. Yeah. So that should follow a Riley distribution, which is right skewed. It's it's close to. It, it like starts at zero, at zero. It goes up and then kind of like goes down as like mm-hmm. one 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 over x. It's not exactly you know. Isn't it? Is it Riley or Raleigh? How is it? It's Riley. It's pronounced Riley. Riley. Oh, Riley. Okay. Yeah. So we knew that much. And they gave us the equation for the distribution and all that. And so what what did we do? Well, there were a lot of for loops happening because we had a lot of data sets and a lot of data in every data set. So firstly, we have pixel positions. They gave us the conversion from pixel to meters. Each each pixel was like 0.1 micrometers. So you just multiply all of those by the conversion. And because you don't care about the absolute coordinates, you just care about the difference because you're looking at step sizes between one frame, like where does the bead go from one frame to the next? Because it's random motion. And so a step size would just be, well, the coordinates of the final position minus the coordinates of the first position. And then you use Pythagoras theorem to find the step size. And so you do that for 120 steps or technically 119 because it's I minus one. So 119 steps per data set, you do that for all of your beads and then you just plot a histogram. And we, I actually had a lot of trouble with this at first, but it was just a small mistake in my code. As soon as I fixed the mistake, we saw that most data sets were very nicely Riley distributed. Everything looked very well. Now the next step was to curve fit this distribution because it turns out when you take the knowledge that you know about um, Brownian motion, right? Um, Random motion of very small particles depends on a lot of variables. For example, how big are the beads? What's the temperature of the water? 
and other things. I'm not gonna name, <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna name them all right now. The viscosity of the water, another mm-hmm. example. So uh one thing is that we had this diffusion constant. And the diffusion constant, you can kind of imagine it's uh, I always when I when I think of diffusion constant, I always think about T when you put it into the water. And oh, it, yeah. it's kind of like if you have a high diffusion constant, that means when you look at the T diffuse into the water if there's a high diffusion constant then the tea will go into the water very quickly mm-hmm. but let's say the the liquid is very viscous or the tea is weird and the diffusion constant is low mm-hmm. then the tea will take Slow. a very long time to diffuse and so actually this kind of makes sense um if you imagine the riley distribution if you don't know what it looks like just think of like a normal distribution but right skewed right skewed um so for high diffusion constants the or sorry for low diffusion constants am i getting this wrong for high diffusion constants the step size would be larger yeah that's right that's right for high diffusion constants the step size would be larger because you know the think about the tea bag right Mm -hmm. the the particles diffuse faster and so in between one frame to the next the step size would be larger yeah that makes sense and then the the smaller diffusion constants would have very small step sizes on average and so you can kind of tell how the riley distribution spreads out for different for for low diffusion constants is very close to zero and it's a very skinny low variance and then as you increase the diffusion constant it just like smears out to the right so you are knowledgeable of your diffusion constant like that's your control variable that's what we're curve fitting that's what you're curve fitting. yeah okay sorry so because that's your, the diffu- that's your response because the case. diffusion constant is related to the boltzmann's constant because mm, i'm like there has to be some connection between your boltzmann exactly and, yeah has to so be. what we did is we 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 normalized the uh histograms and we curve fit the histograms with the riley probability distribution mm-hmm. function which depends on the time of your time step in between two frames but that was a constant because you use the same time step and it also depends on the diffusion constant but that was the thing we're trying to optimize for so we use the curve fit function with d as our parameter and then we just spat out all of the diffusion constants for each data set after that there's something called stokes drag which depends on the actual property of the bead itself. And like, this is something like general in what's what what is Stokes drag? Stokes drag. It's like um it's roughly it's it's uh it's a quantity in fluid dynamics, I guess you can I guess yeah, thermal, like, yeah, like fluid, fluids. Yeah, so imagine like okay, imagine um you know the the wind tunnels where they send smoke yeah. into objects? Yeah. Like if you have a if you have a like if you have a high Stokes drag, okay, basically there's like a high drag, <laughs> you know, like the mm. like if you have a flat plane, there's gonna be a lot of drag. Yeah, that makes versus sense. Versus if you have like if an have airplane, like, like an then there's gonna be a very low aero- drag. Aerodynamic. Aerodynamic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the Stokes drag has to do with like how much re- wind resistance are you feeling? Well, not like so. Resistance. What's Stokes drag versus just drag? Like, is there? Well, it's just a, it's just a quantity to like. Oh, it's like a formal measurement yeah, kind of exactly. thing. Okay, okay. So it's like a type of type of drag. Yeah. Okay. okay. And just so everybody knows, what I said 
it's just my understanding of it. I have not done anything outside of this lab with Stokes drag. But the, the it has nothing to do with Stokes. No, 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 okay. no, no. <laughs> no. It's just his variable. Same name. Same name. <laughs> it's just his his quantity. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's my understanding of Stokes drag. Um, so we could calculate Stokes Stokes drag. It depended on the radius of the bead and other things. And to calculate Boltzmann's constant, what you do is you you actually relate. So this goes back to the theory in the beginning, um, where they talk about how the square average displacement increases linearly in time and it's actually proportional to the diffusion constant and so einstein also had this whole thing where he found that um the diffusion constant was equal to something and that relates to the first equation and so from there you can isolate for the diffusion constant the diffusion constant and that had um if i remember it's Stokes drag times Boltzmann's constant divided by temperature. Anyway, Boltzmann is in there, which is what's important. Yeah. Boltzmann is in there. So we have temperature, we have Stokes drag, Beautiful. and we have diffusion constants Beautiful. that we optimized for. Beautiful. So then you just solve for Boltzmann's constant. Uh, doing uncertainty for this lab was really hard. And did you, did, did you get a value that was in, like, was your, was it in the range of Boltzmann's constant? Uh, no. How off was it? Like, really off? Or? Well, here's, like... Our analysis was pretty complicated. Like some of our values gave values that are very close to Boltzmann's constant. Boltzmann's constant is like 1.38 10 to the minus 23. And we got we got 1.5 oh. 10 to the minus 3. But this is only for like three out of our 18 beads. A lot of our beads gave us like five times or eight times Boltzmann's constant. And Actually, something that's a little bit unfortunate is that I looked back recently at my code and I saw something that I did wrong. Oh, no. Yeah. And if I would have fixed it, it would have been way better. But I gave like an explanation as to why some of the beads gave us some good values. And to, as, See, why, as, as long like, as you analyze why I, your outliers I tried to come exactly. up with an explanation. But now that I realize that it was actually something in my code, I'm like, wait, maybe... <laughs> maybe that explanation was not the right answer. I should have just been like bad code <laughs> but that's tough anyways it was a fun lab it was cool um and yeah we got to we got to calculate some some fundamental constants that's really dope i want to talk about my last lab though black body radiation hmm. we're not going to get to ast yeah, labs I know, I know. that'll have to be another episode those are really cool yeah so we also are in i think we mentioned this before but we're also parker and i are in an astronomy lab course is this the last one is there any fourth year lab course? Oh, there is. Oh, three. Like the theoretical is the last year for this year. Yeah, you're right. So we're in the third year of astrophysics labs. And we have some really cool labs that actually we were also thinking about integrating into this episode. But it is looking less likely. So why not? We can make a new one out of that. But I did want to talk about my last experiment, which was black body radiation. This was really cool because this is straight up exactly what you were to what you would do if you have if you have a theoretical relationship and you want to prove it. Well actually our last lab was a lab that we both did, which was ultrasonic. Velocity of ultrasonic. Was that also yeah. that was Debbie Sears effect that was yeah. was that that was nothing, but th that was just like like that was just calculating things about the. No, lab. I know, but you said this was your last lab, but we only talked about two each. 
Oh no 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 sorry sorry yeah. I meant like this is the last lab that I did in my class oh, okay. sorry sorry yeah. this is like my, like my experiment because we have three experiments so my third experiment was this one is what I was was mm. what I meant and um, yeah so basically two very famous laws in black body physics I guess just physics <laughs> okay yes, physics <laughs> anyway Wine's displacement law and the Stefan Boltzmann law. Those are very, very, very crucial. Wait, hold on. If I remember correctly, yeah. Why not? Stefan's Stefan Boltzmann is like, is like sigma t four. Is that it? Yep. Yeah. Intensity equals sigma t four, and so 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 okay. Kind of got ahead, but so so Wine's displacement law relates the maximum or the peak wavelength of any body's emitted radiation with its temperature, and it states. That when you multiply or the relationship between this maximum wavelength that this body relates, I mean, uh, 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 emits and the temperature is constant. That's basically the whole thing. Oh, shoot. That's crazy. Which is actually insane. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. Which is pretty yeah. cool by <laughs> itself. Which is like, wow, that's, that's pretty interesting to think about, you know? And you know what's even crazier? I'm pretty sure if I remember... Well, in la last year, mm. in our astro, we had a computational assignment, and we found that the peak wavelength emission of the sun is green. Wait, did we? I'm pretty sure we did, but it's just like it's because it's like a mix of a lot of colors that it doesn't look green. Also, probably because of Raleigh scattering in our sky and stuff, because yeah. it's scattered and diffused all over. Yeah, I guess. Okay, that, that's cool. yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah. So yeah, so so fundamental idea about black bodies again spoken about this a lot of times but if you're a little new to the topic every body in essence is a type of a black body there's no perfect black body that exists in the world what is a black body basically a body that absorbs and emits radiation very simple and there's no perfect black body in the sense that it wait perfect black body is it radiates all of the absorbed radiation right that's the perfect black body but yeah. there's nothing really like that or like anyway point being made is that all bodies emit radiation but actually right? stars are the closest approximation yes yes you're right stars are the closest approximation actually cosmic microwave background radiation is oh, the closest yeah, no, you're probably right because that's the very accurate yeah that would probably be yeah, very it is but stars are good stars are stars definitely are good. good approximation for black bodies because again they emit a lot of the spectrum of light a very very large range of spectrum which is exactly the purpose of all black bodies that it basically emits your whole spectrum and the goal or the idea is that as you heat a body up, it starts to glow or in, in the visible spectrum, it starts to glow. But in reality, what's happening is as you're heating the body up, the, the wavelength, the peak wavelength of its emitted radiation is decreasing as the body gets hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. Wait, the peak wavelength or yeah. frequent? peak wavelength okay i was thinking frequency peak wavelength yeah. is decreasing yeah right as as your body is getting hotter and what's reason for this is because remember wavelength decrease means frequency increase means energy increase yep so that means as you're increasing your temperature you're increasing your energy which totally makes sense did i did i do the waving arm uh analogy where like imagine you're waving your arm up and down 
at a certain frequency. If you increase the frequency, it takes more energy. So that's why it's higher energy when you're waving your arm. I guess, yeah. <laughs> I guess I guess that's not a bad way to think about it. Yeah, yeah I guess that's not a bad way to think about it. Yeah. So if you, a, have, if you have a short yeah. wavelength, you have to wave it really fast and that takes a lot of energy. So it's higher so energy. That, I mean, that's a fundamental idea of all black bodies, right? That they emit this thing. And then the Stefan Boltzmann law comes in where it basically relates your intensity, which is your power over area, and to the temperature via this one constant. But anyways, the point is that it relates the power or the intensity of the light with the temperature. So these are your main equations. And our goal in this lab was basically to prove that these equations actually hold, right, with actual experimentation. So this was actually really cool. So we had a spectrophotometer, which is basically a spectrograph, but a little different because it plots it against wavelength. So it takes its it takes its it takes the the spectrum that's emitted and it plots its intensity versus wavelength. And what it does is, or what you do is in this particular experiment, we had a sodium lamp that was set up and we were basically changing its voltage. Now remember, or I don't know if we spoken about this before, but voltage is also related to, temp to temperature in a directly proportional way. That means as voltage increases, so does temperature. And you can kind of intuitively think about, like you can kind of intuitively understand that. This has to do with resistance though. No, but you're keeping resistance constant because it's just the yeah, same lamp, right? I know, but um, like if you want the intuitive picture, it's oh, kind yes. of like, like, yes. Because yeah, voltage is it. like a difference in potential. So you can think of it as like the gradient. And so let's say you have electrons on a piece of wood. And then when you increase the voltage, you're just inclining the piece of wood and you're making the electrons flow. Mm -hmm. But you can think of um, as you increase the, the voltage, what happens is that the resistance is like friction. And so mm -hmm. as the electrons go faster, the there's more friction quote-unquote and, the, and then there's more thermal energy being transmitted so yeah there are a lot of parameters that we do have to control in this particular experiment that was not physical by the way that was just a way to think way about to understand it. <laughs> just, just, just a way to intuitively understand it uh, but uh, a lot of parameters in this particular experiment and we just have to basically vary the voltage and what we were doing is we had the spectrograph or the spectrophotometer that basically would pass by this or we would have to move it manually as it passes by the whole spectrum and what it does you have to do this very slowly because again otherwise the reading will be inaccurate what it does is it basically as the light is coming in whatever wavelength that it is measuring it measures the power per unit area but are you saying like there's a gradient in the intensity of the light and you have to go through no so like we some just parts had were to, hotter no because because the spectrum took up a spatial coordinate, right? So we had to physically move it across the spectrum to get all parts of it, is what I'm saying. Because when you, what actually happened is what the light would be split by a prism, which would kind of- Oh, kind of okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, I was like, how yeah. is this even- So it's split by a prism and then that basically light gets reflected and then you okay. move across that range yeah. to get all of your wavelength values. And what the- spectrograph is basically or spectrophotometer is basically doing is just taking or whatever light that's being emitted it is able to measure the wavelength Ooh. and then calculate the power that's really cool of the light and wait was it was it visible yeah so could you see i, picked, I have some really cool pictures <laughs> i'd like to see those yeah. um could you see like when you send it through the prism could you see where 
like which ones were brighter than the other like you can kind of visually see like the you could actually see different colors getting brighter yes you could see different colors getting brighter you could also number one obviously see the lamp itself getting brighter as you turned up the voltage which was your number one thing about okay temperature voltage and intensity are all related now the prism thing is way cooler the the prism thing is also (laughs) because it's like it's like it's like um a, like level curves of the black body thing you know what i yeah, mean basically. like it's you see it's dim and then it goes up and then down yeah you because you get that for intensity. different readings and then you can monitor where the wavelength was the brightest or the peak basically and now using all of these peak wavelength information basically again we have all of these different sets of data with different temperature or sorry different voltages and different wavelengths we already have a relationship between voltage and temperature so now we have a relationship between wavelength and temperature. Bada bing, bada boom. And you basically kind of, well, plot it. And what you do is you curve it once again. So once you have your wavelength and once you have your temperature, if you simply plot them against one another, you know that their relationship should be one or uh, should be one over T. The Or is it T or is it T to the something? Where are you plotting wavelength? It's T to the something probably. What are you plotting? A wavelength versus temperature. Because the, the equation for Wine's displacement law is max yeah. wavelength times temperature. So it's more, Is it to the power of anything? No, it's divided. It's the constant divided yeah, by temperature. Yeah, this equals a constant is what I'm saying. But is it just temperature or is it yeah, temperature to the temperature. four? It's just temperature. Okay. So your idea is that when you have your lambda and you have your temperature, your slope, so number one, it should look linear. If it doesn't, probably done something wrong there. Because that should not happen. Uh, and number two, what you should be seeing is you should be seeing um, the slope value that is equal to your constant that is predicted by Wine's displacement law. Wait, why Why is the slope linear? Shouldn't it be 1 over x? Like, shouldn't the function be 1 over one second, x? Now I'm thinking. Because what we did... No, I think I'm messing up the Stefan's law part. Again... Bear with me here because I have forgotten. Yeah, the Stefan's law part was linear. Yes, 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 yes. Sorry, 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 sorry. Yes, I remember this. I remember this. We. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry. What I'm talking about right now is the intensity versus temperature to the four. That's why I was asking for the mm. power because I was getting confused. Intensity versus temperature to the four. Yes, yes. That's yes. linear. Yes, that is linear because what that slope equals is your Stefan's constant, your Stefan Boltzmann constant which is another thing that we were actually showing in this experiment. And yes, 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 that was the slope. Sorry, the other thing was not the slope. Scrap that. So that was basically simply via comparing multiple peak wavelengths and multiple temperatures. Damn. We were able to estimate that this is why this is the constant and it was very close. Or not we, it was just me this time. Yeah. yeah, it was just me. <laughs> but anyway. I actually would have rather done this experiment over thermal motion. It sounds like no, a this really is a cool really, one. this was my, 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 I had the most fun in this experiment by yeah. far. Literally every time I would ask the TA, like, hey, how do I do this? And he would show me something. I'd be like, that's so cool. I would like literally like, <laughs> you know, be jittering. I would be, because some of them, some of the stuff was really cool. Like how you're moving it across to like view the spectrum yeah, that's of really this light. Cool. Like how which, dope Which room that? was that in? This was in uh second uh oh, man, I don't remember. It, was, it was the same it, it, it was the same velocity room it was just oh, to the side it was to the side it's such a big room it's to the side though because the velocity you enter the room and it's on the right not a different room. Oh, okay different one then okay never mind because like, i had know, it on a different year you too. know like the the lab room with all the computers 
like the main room oh no Not, we, don't do we, it we no we were in there we were across the hall and then there's like there's like a room and then there's another door and you go into that room yeah that's, that's the room that i was in oh really yeah the, okay. yeah and, it, and they're like yeah they're completely black the, the oh, okay. photoelectric effect was there do you remember the experiments that were in the room the photoelectric was there no, it Velocity wasn't. was there. No, it was polarization of light. Polarization, yeah. sorry, not photoelectric. Polarization yeah. was there. Yeah, so it's the same room anyway. Yeah. You're probably just misinterpreting like where exactly it is. But yeah, same room is what we're talking about. And yeah, this was just done in the corner and uh, super, super cool because basically you get to show that Wine's displacement law holds, which is really cool by itself. The fact that the peak wavelength of any body, because remember, we're like we're changing the we're changing various voltage mm. values so we're testing for different values mm. too so we are taking into different considerations so we're saying for anybody these things are constant that's very cool and then we show that not only is intensity or your power over area related to temperature but it's and we solved using the Kerfit function for the stefan boltzmann constant yeah. which is really cool yeah which is really cool <laughs> which is some stuff that we did so all in all yeah, I love that class, yeah, man. I absolutely love that class. Yeah, I think we'll do another episode where we talk about ultrasonic, uh, ultrasonic waves in water and also our yeah, astronomy yeah. labs. Yeah, our astronomy labs are really cool. For anybody who's like interested in like, well, astronomy really. For <laughs> <laughs> anybody who's really but. interested in astronomy. Um, a big part of that is telescopes. You know, telescopes, data, because... When you think of astronomy, you're like, oh, theoretical black hole space. Like, I know how to do calculations. But that's just like a tenth of it. You know, that's not even half of what astronomy or at least the, like the real analysis part. Again, we're mainly focusing on experiments in this episode. But like, that's not even really what it is. Because the real essence is when you get these gigabytes and gigabytes of data. And then you have to analyze them through like one and two functions. Try to make it as most efficient as possible. Because another advantage of something like astronomy is that it makes you code efficiently. Because when you have like two, three data sets with like 30 observations, you're like, oh, 30 times I have to measure something? That sounds like a lot. But in like astrometric data, you're talking about like thousands of observations and over multiple different time periods, right? So it's a lot more data that you have to collect and all of it just kind of stems from just understanding a good idea of computational physics and then applying a lot of the ideas learned there into these higher things. So we can definitely talk about our astro labs because they were really, really cool as well. The I next semester ones are going to be even the crazier. Ne- to be honest, you yeah. want to wait for that episode then? Because oh, I think the next, because yeah. that would be so yeah, cool. That would, I don't, no, actually, we, 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 we have time to do yeah, both. Yeah, we can do both. We can do both. Talking about those ones we'll are going to take up a whole we'll episode. Because yeah. the next semester. Maybe even more. Because it takes so long to explain, yeah, like right. the lab that we're doing now. You're right. That would take so long. I mean, a, a, a little glimpse into our next semester. So one of our experiments, or our last experiment, and this is the craziest one, is literally titled modeling the milky no, way mapping Valley. mapping the milky way Ma- that sounds like the craziest lab <laughs> like what like that that's gonna be so incredible. cool that's gonna be so cool mapping the milky way like i don't even know what we do it sounds so cool that's gonna be really like cool. that's that's definitely a whole episode we have some really cool labs next semester that we can talk about but even yeah. the ones we did this semester were really cool because it's yeah. still just an intro yeah. into understanding like how we have data from a telescope what do we do with it yeah next right? semester we also have 
labs on exoplanets and labs on pulsars mm, so that's gonna be so cool that's gonna be cool yes, anyways sir. this 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 is the end of the podcast it is the end Matt, we just cut it there <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for listening to this episode if you enjoyed it make sure to follow us on spotify get us to 20 thousand followers no, sir. um also go to youtube even if you don't watch us on youtube just hit the subscribe button and then you can leave you know and then <laughs> also leave a comment comment of the week and also uh do some other stuff thank you so much for listening to this episode this has been episode number 89 of the math and physics podcast i'm your host parker and i'm ray and we shall see you soon Bye, guys.